Sound Design. Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively. And in this episode of the Sound Design Life podcast, I want to share with you an interview that I did with Nate Schneider at AV Shop Talk. We talk about the technical challenges that I faced while touring with the Ringling Brothers Circus, how I got my first job in the seven different cities that I lived in, and the advice that I would give to the 23-year-old me. Let's do it. Coming from here, so front of house engineers, I think, can feel like they're running a circus sometimes, just dealing with musicians. But you literally just finished a nationwide tour. That's right. Uh, running front of house with Ringling Brothers. What were your biggest challenges managing audio for the circus? In terms of just audio, I'd say it was just maintaining system stability. There were we had so many little parts in the system, and we were taking a lot of things on the road. New for the first time. Um, for example, all of the consoles were new to the tour, and um, the Opticore system connecting the consoles. So we were having kind of little things fail um, every week or at every new location, and it could be as small as just like somebody unplugged something because of the way that it was connected and the position of it, and then like the battery backup would last for an hour, but no one would hear it beeping and. So we had to figure out what's happening with that. Um, and then it could be really big things like uh, um, problems with the pinout on the connection from our outputs to all of our speakers and having some noise problems there. Or having, I think at one point we had a speaker not working, but not very exciting stuff, but like just kind of the day-to-day mm-hmm. maintenance and like putting out little fires every day um, was was really the biggest challenge because you have to be so proactive about that stuff. You know, if you just kind of wait for stuff to happen, it could happen in the middle of the show. And then next thing you know, train wreck. Yeah. So was there anything like unique to like the fact that this was like a circus with animals and, and just the, the nature of, of the production? was this something brand new for you? Or like, did you feel kind of like once you got into it, like, oh yeah, I got this, like, this is comfortable <laughs> for me. Or did this like stretch you in new ways as a sound oh, person? Oh, totally. Um, I don't know how much time you have, Nate. Um, <laughs> so many new things for me. In terms of the show, this is the first circus I've ever seen. Apparently it's been done other places, but the first time done in the US where they have ice for part of the part of the floor. So instead of, imagine a three ring circus, but the first ring is all ice and then there's ice around the sides. So not only do they have acrobats and animals and trapeze artists and all that stuff, but then there's also skaters and they come down the, in, uh, the sides through entrances in the back. And there are several parts of the show that are just for the skaters. And then they're involved in a lot of other parts of the show. So that was super new for the show. And that, you know, through a whole new challenge for us loading in because, you know, we're loading into hockey arena. So we're pushing things across ice so that when we get in to load in, Nate, the entire floor is ice and they don't put the flooring down for the acrobats and the animals and stuff until after we install the entire grid and raise the grid and stuff like that. So we spend the first two days working on ice. So, um, almost everyone has kind of these cleats to keep you from falling, but I'd never, I'd never had to do something like that before. I can't imagine pushing, you know, travel cases across ice and, you know, that, that being like the regular procedure. It just seems like, uh, <laughs> yeah. like that's exactly why I asked that question. Cause I'm like, there's, you're doing a circus. There's gotta be some crazy things going on that aren't typical to, you know, just, you know, mixing a five piece band or something like that, you know? Yeah. The other thing is 
And for the circus, the thing compared to other shows that I've worked on is that the grid is so packed. I mean, I know a lot of the shows have grids that are really packed, but this one is not just like audio, video, and lighting. There's also a bunch of hardware up there for all of the acts. So you've got all the trapeze stuff. You got the tiger cage that has to come down. There's this big piece. There's this big piece called a piece of hardware that we need for the upside down act that like hangs people upside down. And at one point they actually put that right in front of one of our speakers. And then we had to negotiate for how to turn it around. So that's also another big challenge that I don't think is maybe like a lot of other shows. If anybody's uh, thinking about going on tour with the circus, you got to definitely give Nathan a call, drop him a line (laughs) on, uh, on Twitter or something like that and pick his brain before you, you take a gig like that. Cause I'm sure you learned a lot. Yeah. Uh, and if people do want to work, uh, for Feld, so Feld is the company that owns Ringling Brothers and they have since, I don't remember. Oh, I should have looked this up. Anyway, they've owned it for a long time now, the Feld family. And, um, most of the people that work for them are employees. So you can apply for a job and what they actually like to start people pretty young um, because it's hard to find someone um, at our age, Nate, who can go on the road for 365 days a year. When you're in your 20s, that is like your window kind of like nobody ever told me that when when I was that young. But like when you're like just graduated high school or college or wherever you are, that is the time to get out on the road, you know, see the world. Yeah. And uh, they, a lot of opportunities. Feld owns a Feld owns a handful of shows, over twenty, maybe twenty-seven or something, and a lot of them are the ice shows, and they're pretty simple in terms of operation. It's just playback, but they have, um, you know, some pretty big sound systems, not too dissimilar to the ones we're using on the circus, and um, that's a great place to get into touring if you want to work on those kind of big shows. Um, because you get the experience of setting up a big system like that. And then later on, you could move to something else if you wanted to that had a little bit more interesting content in terms of mixing, if that's what you're into. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great advice there. So, um, yeah, good, good, good to look out for opportunities like that. If you're, if you're listening and you're interested, um, definitely great, great point there, Nate. Um, now, before we jump into your, more of your story, I also noticed, um, on your, um, on your YouTube channel, you had posted a video from the road um, that you were using a Digico SD5. And I understand the, the faders on that console had some pretty slick features. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? And I'll put a link to that video in the show notes. Sure. I'm going to do some more videos. Um, I really learned, I didn't know anything about Digico consoles before I started on this tour. I took some training courses, watched the training videos, and then just using it full time since I got there, learned so much about it. Um, and it was really interesting. Some of it was painful. I spent a lot of time, um, on the phone with Digico support, trying to figure out OptiCode, OptiCore, sorry, OptiCore kind of errors, their transmission protocol. Um, Mm -hmm. such a great, such a great communication protocol, but, um, uh, can be a little tricky to set up if you're doing kind of a complicated setup like we are, where we have multiple consoles, multiple racks, um, all that kind of stuff. And I wrote an article actually about that with some of my tips about just OptiCore for other people that might have problems with that. But about the SD5 itself, um, a lot of things that made it really um, nice to write the show on and also to operate the show on. So 
I guess I should talk about probably the biggest thing for me was the recording because what we did during show build was we had some opportunities to record the band in the hall in the evenings. Um, and then the next morning I would come in, listen to those recordings and start setting up my mixes and setting my cues. I couldn't actually ask the band to wait and play multiple times while I mm. set mixes and cues. And I heard that in the past, that's what they did every year until now. So this is the first year where we really, apparently for them, first my first time with them. Um, but I've done this with the, in the past with theater a lot, is record just a run-through and then listen to it later, multi-track playback while I set my cues and, and make some changes and maybe figure out things with the mix. So helpful, so nice to be able to like just pick you know a 30 second piece that you need to figure out like how am I going to make this transition work and just be able to play it back over and over again so um, they make that really easy with uh, the SD5 you can switch back and forth between what's coming in on the MADI inputs compared to what's coming in on your um, maybe analog inputs from your rack down by the band or something like that just one button I switched another window push a button and then I'm listening to the recording so um, nice. and it's, it's flexible enough that I could actually run rehearsals and work on the recording at the same time. So you can play back safe some of the channels. So I would play back safe, just like whatever, um, rehearsal channels they were using to just get through the rehearsals. And then I would be there in the same room on my headphones, working on the mix, working on the sound design, the transitions. So that was a really nice feature. Um, besides that, I think I really got into the snapshots. Um, and you know, it's been long enough now. I think it's been two months since I've been on tour now that I've already forgotten a little bit of the terminology in terms of, you know, every console calls their snapshotting and scene memory, something a little bit different, but, um, mm -hmm. I really like the way they had their set up. So I was able to get pretty quickly into a system where I could record a snapshot and then just isolate the scope. That's what they call it, the scope. So with each snapshot, uh, you just hit record and it records everything on the desk. But then when you recall that snapshot, you can change in the scope exactly what parameters. So most of the time I was just recalling like a fader here, a fader over there. A lot of times it was the keyboards because the keyboards are kind of the thing that would surprise me the most because it might be like um, some sound effects coming out of the channel at one point and then like um, some quiet pad coming out of another channel and all I have in my mm. all I have in my console is like keyboards one two three four I can't really see <laughs> you know like they're changing patches throughout the entire show so it was really nice oh. to have the ability with these snapshots to really fine-tune the scope of what was being recalled. Sometimes I would just recall an effect setting, sometimes just an EQ setting. So I, I got really into that. And I don't know how many more details you want about the SD5, but um, I'll tell you a couple more quick ones. Um, okay. the, it has, I really like multi-band compressors. And I would put them on everything always if I could. And this is the first desk where I've actually been able to do that. They have multiband compressors on every channel. And I think there's a limit to the number that you could use, but I, I never reached that limit. So, and they, and they sound good too. So 
that was another thing that I liked about the console, the multiband compressors. I put that on a lot of stuff. Um, and then we also had the Waves Rack server. I'd never had the opportunity to mix with one of those. And I didn't use anything critical with it. That is to say, like, if the Wave server went down, I didn't want the show to be ruined. So I did mm-hmm. some, just some, some things that were really helpful, but that I could have gotten by without. So, for example, I think the, my favorite thing that I used from Waves was the Vocal Writer plugin. And I put that on the main vocalist because he was so dynamic. Oh, man, he would just... And, you know, it wasn't necessarily his fault. They wrote these parts for him where it would just it would get into a weird place with his voice. There were some songs mm-hmm. where it would just be in a good place with his voice the entire time, and he could just, like, soar with it. But there were other ones where he had to go from, like, talking to a weird place in his voice to singing really high, and he'd be all over the map in terms of dynamics. So I inserted the Vocal Writer plug-in and just over the course of like the first month of the tour, tweak the settings so that it really helped me get him in the pocket without needing to like chase him around with the fader manually 100% of the time. Oh, very cool. And that's called Vocal uh, Writer, like W-R-I-T-E-R? No, Rider, like a horse rider, R-I-D-E-R. Like Rider, like you're riding the fader? Yep. Gotcha. Cool, cool. Let's look that one up. Well, great. Thanks for sharing some some tips about that. I saw that video, so I wanted to touch on that. So yeah, look forward to uh, to more videos uh, from, from the road there. If you've got anything uh, in store, I'll definitely be looking at your YouTube channel. But uh, let's let's jump into kind of your career and how it how it developed and formed. Um, you know, based on your LinkedIn profile, I know you started doing live sound in about 2003. And you've worked on dozens of productions, maybe even hundreds. I'm not I'm not sure. But um, uh, glancing over your gig list, it looks like I see titles kind of like sound designer, composer, sound engineer, recording in front of house engineer, production manager, A1, AV technician, creative director. I mean, there's a, a lot of these things cross over, but they're all kind of different at the same time. What is your favorite hat to wear uh, in the live sound world and why? It's <laughs> um, a good question. Uh, probably sound designer. I mean, that's the one that has kind of the most overarching response. Overarching? Is it overarching or overarching? I always get confused. I think it depends on what day of the week. I think either one. <laughs> okay. That's the one that has either one goes. the most kind of general responsibilities of just like responsible for all things in the RL environment. Um, and it also has um, more creative aspects. So you are potentially doing the sound system design. You're potentially... Um, recording things for a show, you're potentially uh, making sound cues and things like that. So um, that is not the most of what I do. And it's one of the harder gigs to get. But um, uh, I think sound designer is one of my favorite titles. Like if I just had to pick one job title to do all the time, that would probably be the most fun. Okay, cool. So sound designer would be your favorite, but it's a little bit harder to to come to come by well it's a little bit harder to put together a career as a sound designer just because the contracts are longer so as a front of house engineer you might just work for a day right or in in a lot of these other titles um just as far as freelance goes but for a sound designer you know your minimum contract is going to be two weeks i guess you know if you're working on a really small piece of off Broadway kind of small theater where you just need to like go to a few rehearsals, 
make a few cues, helped him with the install, tech rehearsal. Like you could get that all done in two weeks. Still, it's harder to put together, to manage your calendar um, and put together enough work to where as, as a front of house engineer, like it's only a day. It's a lot easier to like put together a calendar and like fill up your calendar with days of work than it is with potentially weeks or months of work. Yeah. And it's probably, it's competitive too, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that are trying to do that stuff because it's, it's, I guess it's more on the fun, creative side of things than, than anything else, right? Yeah, that's true. And there are people who are willing to do it for less. So, ah, so people are not going to do a piece of, people are probably not going to do a corporate event for free. I don't ever see that happening, but people will do sound design for a piece of theater for free especially if it's like friends of theirs and it seems like it's going to be fun and they're going to have their music shown off. And, you know, it's different. I mean, as a sound designer, um, if you do something for someone, you know, each of the jobs that you do is kind of like building equity because hopefully you, your name is in there. And so it might not matter if you don't get paid, but what if you like get connected to something that gets really popular? And so then jobs after that are going to be better and better. But as a sound engineer, like, you are the invisible person that should probably never be heard or never be seen, right? So um, mm. it it doesn't really benefit you to do free work just to get your name connected to some show like that. You're never gonna, you know what I mean? It's that it's that making sense? Like yep. the, the front of house mixer is almost never credited. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I I, I hear you. I mean, I just I've I've got some um, I've been collaborating on some other projects where. Um, people have, you know, TV producers have approached me about certain things and, you know, sometimes they want to use a, some, some piece of content that I created on YouTube and it's just like, well, sure. If this is going to be on ABC world news, yeah, go ahead. Just take it, you know? But then like the next day I'm like, oh, I bet you there's like a standard rate that I could have asked for. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, it's just exciting to be included in something big. So, you know, you got to try to weigh that out. And um, I can totally see how how that would happen. Yeah, it's hard to know how that stuff is going to play out. I think for most people, there is going to be a common path where if you're new to any kind of market or location or job or I don't know group of people you have to start out on some lower end where you either are giving your videos away for free a little bit just to get some exposure or you are um, not working for the rate that you'd like to be working for and then yeah over time you do less and less of that until you know you are getting the rate that you want you are selling your videos for a premium and things like that so I think that's pretty common. I know from listening to Sound Design Live and just following you on Twitter and everything that you spent some time in Portugal, and um, those were some 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 formative years, or those are some some good years uh, when you were over there. Do you have any tips? Can you talk about like Portugal and your experience over there, and then make maybe tips for you know somebody who's looking to find work in a new city where they don't know anyone? Because I know that was a big part of of you spending some time in Portugal. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think the best tip I could give for finding work in Portugal would be to start smoking. Because then if you're smoking, (laughs) then you can start taking smoke breaks and you can start hanging out with everyone else who's smoking. So cigarettes are popular? Are you talking about (laughs) cigarettes? (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people still smoke in Portugal. I mean, it's not like Greece, but 
uh, still a lot more common than in the U.S. Um, okay. So in New York City, I remember I landed my first gig because my cousin was in the theater scene, and she connected me to a really amazing director named Lee Brewer, and that's happened to me plenty of times just by knowing someone who knows that I'm a sound engineer and connects me. Um, but in Lisbon, I didn't know anyone in Portugal. So I landed my first job there by writing down all of the studios and performance venues in town and then just going door to door until finally I got to the bottom of the list because it was in alphabetical order. And I went to a show at this place called ZDB. And I walked up to the sound engineer at the show and I said, hey, I'm a sound engineer too. And he said, oh, I'm not. And that's why it took me six months to find a job there <laughs> because I was going through that list and not really getting anywhere and finally got to the last one that started with Z. Um, wow. Then uh, I moved to Bratislava in Slovakia after that and I got my first job there by sending out a bilingual postcard to all of the local production companies and venues with kind of a short CV and then a couple of them just reached out to me after that for interviews. Then back in Austin, after I moved back to the U.S., I landed my first job by responding to a Craigslist ad for a community theater operator gig. Um, And then in San Francisco, I landed my first job as a sound designer by, again, just going door to door, but this time with a better strategy and just a lot more focus. Some of the best wisdom for getting started as a sound engineer can be found in my free e-course, How to Make Money as a Sound Engineer, which you can sign up for at sounddesignlive.com or by texting me right now at 747-666-5768. It includes six lessons. How much do live sound engineers make? Should I get a job or go freelance? How to find sound engineering jobs? How to make a living as an audio engineer? And the most common tax deduction you might be missing. You can sign up for it at sounddesignlive.com or by texting me right now at 747 666 Five seven six eight. And if you want to hear more episodes of AV Shop Talk with Nate Schneider, you can do that at avshoptalk.com. So it sounds like you've done some pretty creative things. I mean, there's there's nothing, um, I guess nothing beats pounding the pavement, right? And just, just actually physically walking into the door and you have a personal interaction with somebody. That can just sometimes be 10 times better than an email or a phone call is, just, is physically you know, having a conversation with somebody face to face, it sounds like that's still like kind of the, the number one ways to, to make contact, right? Well, when you are without a network, like when you're moving to a new city, like I was, that's the hardest spot to be in. It can be really hard to know where your force, your first opportunity is going to come from. So you, you have to kind of use every means you can, you can think of. Um, but yeah, in a lot of cases, it's going to be walking in the door at the right time, unfortunately. And so you just, in my case, I just tried to figure out ways to, I guess, make that happen faster by just canvassing more area, um, by trying to get face-to-face meetings with people. Um, but for anyone that's in a similar position, I think the best piece of, I guess, knowledge or information that I gained is that especially when you don't know anyone, you might walk in the door at the wrong time or you might give someone a call or an email at the wrong time and they won't even respond to you. And you may at first take that personally, like I know I did several times, like who do these people think they are? They're ignoring me, they're jerks, I want to work for them anyway. And then 
maybe a couple of months later, you walk in the door and then all of a sudden it's the right time. Like they need someone. They just need anyone or they need someone who in my case, uh, I got another one of my first gigs in Bratislava just because I spoke English and I got to mix monitors for John, John McLaughlin, like one of the top guitarists in the world. And I just mm. happened to reach out to these guys at the right time when they were like, we don't really have anyone that speaks English well enough to do this show. So I got to do this huge gig. So um, hopefully that was clear that I'm saying that um, if you get turned away or people ignore you the first time, um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't keep trying to reach out. Yeah, that and that's that's like some some really good wisdom right there too. Because I think I think oftentimes we do take it personally. Like some, you know, if we don't hear back from somebody, it's it's easy to take it personal. But you really like it's a professional type of thing. You got to kind of separate the two. And um, I think the biggest. So, so just to recap, kind of what I think you said was you first of all you created the list just knowing who the players are in your region is like, number one, create that list of 10 or 20 possible employers, go door to door, get creative. You did bilingual postcards, which I think was brilliant. I think that's a great, (laughs) a great piece of advice. If you're in a new country like that, like awesome. Um, You know, I want to get your thought on another, a quote that I saw recently that like there has been this kind of like common uh, wisdom. It's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, but to turn that on its head, recently I heard another kind of take on that. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. And <laughs> yeah. do you find that like with your podcast and all the social media stuff and YouTube videos that you're doing, do you, do you have, have you ever drummed up any work from just your social media presence and people kind of cold calling you from seeing some content or listening to some content that you've created? Has that been a way to get new business for, from your perspective? No, not at all. Um, uh, it's funny that things don't work that way. Um, in my experience, I started my podcast and I started my, you know, Twitter account and things like that to try to get more work as a sound designer. And that never happened like 100% never happened. What I did get out of that is I discovered that I love teaching and sharing information, and so I started an education business out of that, but um, I never got actually any sound design or um, uh, engineering work out of that. It's funny, Nate, because uh, as you were mentioning, our industry is almost 100% based on personal referral still, even in this day of like, so many job sites and LinkedIn's and places like that. Um, but, but being present online and that kind of stuff, as far as getting gigs as a sound engineer or a sound designer has never happened to me. I've heard, um, colleagues, students, friends of mine that has happened to them occasionally. And the way I've heard it happening is most recently, for example, uh, one of my students said that, uh, because I don't know if you know this, but meetup profiles uh, on the meetup.com site are public, I think. At least some of them are. And someone mm-hmm. searched for game sound designer profiles, I guess, in their area. His profile came up. It linked to his website. They went to his website, listened to his some of his clips, and hired him to work on a game. And I don't know how common that is, um, because most of my experience is in sound design for live events, sound engineering for live events, that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's funny. None, none of that stuff ever helped me get a job. Um, 
it's all, which is again, why it's so hard to, for it to be a portable career and why it can be so hard to, to start over again. And you know, that's most of the people that come to me for private coaching for career and business coaching are people who have had a great career somewhere and then are moving cities for, um, you know, variety of different reasons, but then they show up and they're like, Oh wow. All of a sudden everything that came so natural, naturally to me in the last place that I lived now is not happening. I'm not getting any work. So what do I do? Put ads in the yellow pages and you know, you got to come up Mm. with a, a strategy. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean that, and we should touch on this a little bit more about your, your personal coaching and, and kind of what you're, what you're doing over there with seeing sound and, uh, with your ebook that's, that's, that's coming out too. But, um, so what, like, what's one piece of advice that you would give, you know, maybe, maybe a younger version of you that, you know, somebody listening to this that says, when I grow up, I want to be, um, you know, I want to be like Nathan Lively. I want to have that type of career. Like what's some advice you would give to a younger version of yourself? Uh, if I just had to give one, it would be to get used to discomfort or become comfortable with discomfort because so much of my pain in this career and reasons that I've burned out when I have is because I get upset about like the long hours, the heavy labor, the whatever, lack of food, just conditions, places that I'm working. And I think if I would have just known early on and started kind of getting used to that and just accepting it instead of getting pissed off every time, I think I would have had less of a rocky start (laughs) in like the first decade of my career. Mm. Um, And then just in terms of like, building relationships and getting more of the work that I love. I think my number one tip would be to connect with other people who are ahead of me and build relationships with other sound engineers and sound designers who are doing the kind of work that I would love to do or who are making more money or who have the kind of clients that I think would be fun to work with. And, um, just regularly connecting with them, building relationships and letting them know that I also want to be doing that kind of work because that is, those connections have really launched me in new cities when I moved to new cities and like, I don't know anyone. I don't even have any work experience in that city or with that person, but that's, those are the kind of people that sympathize with me because they're like, Oh, I'm, you know, I see him. He's a sound designer, just like me. He's, uh, you know, trying to survive just like me. He's trying to find work that he loves just like me. And so it's a lot easier to get help from those people. Gotcha. Now I want to follow up with something you said. You, you mentioned, um, you know, become uncomfortable with discomfort. So, you know, taking a step back further, when I mentioned like a young person to, you know, a younger version of yourself to give it advice to. So anybody else who's listening, that's like, Hey, I think I want to do this like sound design thing. I want to be a front of house engineer. I want to do like all these creative things, go on the road. Um, and they hear that. Is that like, should they be scared of that? I mean, is this, is this like something that people should say, well, hold on, maybe I don't really want that lifestyle or it like, is this something that, um, be comfortable with discomfort. That sounds like it's a pretty rough road. I mean, is that to say <laughs> that like you kind of chose a, a kind of rocky, rocky career path or just like the nature of the work is, is tough or, you know, would you maybe tell somebody like, 
yeah, sell insurance. You'll have a safer life that way. Is that like, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to inter- decode this because it sure. sounds like a, you had a rough experience or you've been in some pretty rough exper- uh, places. I did. And, you know, first and foremost, I'm glad that I went through all of that. So now when I am helping other people and coaching other people and they tell me what they're interested in, I can guide them better because I've done all this stuff. I've done a bunch of work that I hated and I've done a bunch of work that I liked. And so now I have like this broad experience that I can draw upon. Um, whenever people, whenever I meet people and tell them I'm a sound engineer and they say, Oh, like my, my niece is a sound engineer. And, um, do you have any advice for her? And usually what I say is, Oh, do you want me to talk her out of it? And usually (laughs) people laugh, but sometimes people are disappointed too. And I'm joking, but at the same time, I don't think anybody really knows how hard it's going to be before they start in terms of working on live events mainly and, yeah. or, or even, uh, you know, the, the long hours that you put in anywhere, I guess, working at a studio and things like that. You don't really know what it's going to be like until you start. So, so yeah, it was rocky for me. And, um, I learned a lot along the way. Should people not do it? I really don't know. I think the best thing to do is probably try it out in a place where you're not committed for a long time. So if you can um, just tell, ask someone if you can shadow them at an event or ask them if you can assist them for a couple of weeks, see what it's like. Um, Because it's true that there's just, there's plenty of jobs that are not going to be a good fit for you. But then there's some other ones that are going to be great. Um, Yeah, it's kind of hard to distill this down, Nate, except to say that... Yes, there are some jobs that you're going to hate. <laughs> and um, the only true way to know about those is to actually do them, which is why I usually just try to help people get to whatever they want as quickly as possible. A lot of people come to me because they want to be on tours. They want to be on international tours. And I used to try and stop people and say, do you know what this is going to be like? Should we talk about this? to make sure this is what you really want. Instead, I'm just like, okay, let's get there as quickly as possible so that you have that experience so that you know if it's what you really want. Yeah, you've got you've to try it. I mean, you know, thinking and processing more about this, like I just uh, was approached by um, a writer for, for, um, for Rave Pubs who um, wanted to do a piece on me, an AV Insider um, story, and one of the one of the pictures I posted was when I got to do a stage build at Fenway Park, and I'm just thinking about it now. And I, I included that in my story, and I was like, "This was like a really fun project. It was just really cool to be at Fenway and be working there and the atmosphere and everything." Um, one of the things I didn't mention was that we had to show up at 3:30 a.m. to start the, the loading. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I conveniently left that part out of the story, but like I subconsciously, because, you know, and it wasn't fun setting the alarm for, you know, you know, uh, you know, two thirty, so I could be in Boston at three thirty, and that, and that whole deal. But yeah, I, I, I'm processing kind of what you, what you meant by that. And just, I don't know, living, doing, doing the career on the road is, is going to have some challenges and, you know, um, but uh, then again, that was a very fun project to work on. And I look back on it and think like, wow, that was so cool. I got to be a part of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely don't want people to blame you later on and say like, why did Nate say that I should get into uh, touring? And then I got here and it's, it's terrible and I hate it. 
Um, but it's, I'd be, I'm always surprised. Everyone has a different tolerance level that they just seem to be born with or that they were raised with or whatever. And they, some people get there and it's just like a fish to water, you know, and they love it. And they're like always, even when they're in their off hours, they're hanging out. Um, I remember I used to work with a guy in Slovakia who was like born for this job. He was a project manager and we would work on these multi-day music festivals. He was probably only getting three or four hours of sleep a night, but he loved it. I would see him in the morning, like all groggy and like obviously really tired, but really happy to be there and like out in the sun all day long. And I kind of hated it. So mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to know. Great. So let's talk about, um, you know, how people can get connected to you, Nathan, and, and kind of, you know, what you've got coming up in the future. Um, I know before we started recording, you mentioned that you've got an ebook that's coming out. Um, so I just want to, can you tell us about your ebook and why, why people might want to subscribe to that? Or, or, or um, I don't know if they subscribe is the right word, but they might want to download it. Sure. Uh, yeah. So it, it's going to be an ebook and a real book that you can buy on Amazon, but um, it will be free from November 29th until December 6th giving away free for the first week um, to really build up some momentum. And also just because I I just really want to share these ideas. So the book is called Master Your Craft, Sound System Tuning for Confidence and Consistency. And I've been learning so much about sound system tuning in the last, I guess, nine years since I had my first seminar with Bob McCarthy. And I keep being kind of blown away that these ideas which have helped me so much um, in terms of setting up a sound system for equal coverage. seems like such a simple idea, but it's still not super common and not well known how to accomplish. Um, I I really want to spread those ideas. So the book is going to be free for the first week. And um, I guess I could tell you the link, but it's kind of long. So I'll just let you put it in the show notes, Nathan. And um, and then after that, it'll be like, I don't know, $8 on Amazon or something like that. But if you can get it for free in the first week, then why not? Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll certainly put a link in the show notes to uh, to Master Your Craft, a new ebook here. Um, and it, I guess uh, it'll, be, it'll be free from November 29th through uh, December 6th. So if you're listening to this podcast uh, right when it comes out on December 1st, you'll have a few days to download the book for free. Um, which I know I will be doing because I'm very interested to check this out. Oh, great. So, uh, It'll be yeah. great to have your feedback, Nate. Yeah, definitely. I can, uh, looking forward to, to reading it. There's just so much to learn out there. And I uh, appreciate you putting that together. And um, if anybody wants to follow you or your podcast, Sound Design Live, uh, where, where should they go? Yeah, sounddesignlive.com is the best place to go. I think I mentioned it in the last episode, but that's also the place to sign up for my two free e-courses, which are Intro to Sound System Tuning and How to Make Money as a Sound Engineer. So sounddesignlive.com is the best place to keep up with my work. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, We'll talk shop with you in the next episode of AV Shop Talk. Shop Talk podcast is produced independently by Nate Schneider. Support for this episode has been provided by Peerless AV. Theme music, Giant's Causeway from the album Trinity, is by Colin Owens. 
Voiceover contributions have been provided by John Perry. To view the show notes, please visit avshoptalk.com slash episode 35.